A warning before we start. This podcast contains discussions of suicide. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or you can get help from Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. We've also put some links to support in our show notes. There are many sounds you might associate with a regional airfield. The whir of a propeller, the thunk of a plane returning to a tin hangar, the sound of 20 or so people bleeding like a goat in the name of yoga. It's probably not one of them. I'm at Smithton Regional Airport, where a goat yoga class is being held. Think downward goat instead of downward dog. Picture baby goats climbing on top of participants as they stretch their limbs. And then there's the constant risk of stepping back into fresh goat poo as you move on your mat. At one point, I swear I see a child drowning in goats. Although, after the session, we all agree he brought it on himself by trying to feed the goats with leaves nabbed off a nearby gum tree. I'm told this is a fairly tame session. Another class saw some of the goats break free and yoga was paused while everyone chased them down. Basically, it's chaos. And not exactly what you'd expect from Smithton, a town of about 4,000 people on the northwest coast of Tasmania. Smithton is dairy country, a proud, often stoic place, with debate from the locals over whether it's rural, regional or paradise. For Alicia Coates, it's home. Um, You do get known as the crazy goat lady around town, but I've sort of grown to wear that with pride now, not just, (laughs) oh God, how embarrassing. Alicia used to work for a major dairy company. Her husband was a farmer too. But in recent times, she's taken on an agricultural venture of a different kind. With one of the best business names going around, Alicia's Grumpy Goat Co Care Farm is a community-driven enterprise all about improving mental wellbeing in the area. Two and a half years ago, I suffered a traumatic experience in the workplace and instead of receiving support from my employer, I was actually terminated. And that then resulted in quite a traumatic experience for me in and around my mental health to the point of attempted suicide. It all started a few years back when Alicia lost her job and her mental health hit an all-time low. Then, on a whim, she and her husband John bought some goats off Gumtree. I didn't respond to typical treatment. So your four walls, going and having a chat with a psychologist, I tended to regress rather than progress. And one evening, my husband and I were laying in bed and I was, let's go back dairy farming, you know, at least you're your own boss and we're together and, you know, he's my rock. And there were some milking goats. And I said, well, look, let's get some milking goats and at least I can handle them on my own. Then he went and got them. (laughs) At that stage, Alicia was still only able to get out of bed for maybe an hour a day, if that. What getting these milking goats did for me, though, was they gave me a purpose. So I knew he wouldn't look after the goats because animals are my thing. So if all I did was get out of bed and milk those goats, that's all I did. And then I slowly, it started from half an hour to an hour to then, you know, doing more around the house and feeling more confident in myself. And 
by all means, I'm not fully recovered and, and I may never, ever be back to what I was, but most definitely my husband and my goat saved my life. Hi, I'm Meg Whitfield, and for this episode of Voice of Real Australia, I did yoga with goats to see the innovative ways Smithton is providing mental health support where official channels fall short. Three and a half million people sought mental health support in 2020 to 21, and Lifeline took record numbers of daily calls. It can be tough to get support in regional areas, though. There are fewer in-person services available, costs attached to getting help can be higher, and everyday stresses mean health can often get pushed to the side. So it was something that we thought, well, this could really work in our community. Unfortunately, we had suffered quite a few suicides. There were four suicides in our community. Uh, One of them was a very good friend of mine. Half the battle can be asking for help in the first place, which, for Alicia, is where the goats come in. Being in a small community and the stigma around mental health, you don't reach out for help due to the fact that there is that perception. By all means, it was great. The Liberal government put in 100000 but they put it at the hospital where you drive straight past. You know, in my mental health, I'm thinking, one, this is a barrier. I'm walking into a sterile environment where I'm being judged. Two, people are knowing I'm here because they can see my car. Three, Auntie Jo works there, who's married to here, who marries to there, so they're all going to talk about me going in there. So there's so many barriers. The yoga sessions are only one part of Alicia's vision. She wants to turn the site into an official care farm, with a whole team of support workers behind it and the opportunity for young people to spend afternoons working there. Eventually, Alicia's goal is to employ a counsellor, and she wants to be able to refer people in need to mental health professionals. But one thing that we really wanted to do, while there's quite a lot of support for the older generation in relation to mental health, we want to stop the horse bolting before it's bolted. We want to be able to do some preventative things. We want some programs, put some things in place, you know, have that um, mentorship Both of us have always been very strong on it takes a village to raise a child. And if that child's not getting those skill sets and that support at home, then they need other places to be giving it. And as we're seeing in our smaller communities, our sporting communities are shrinking. Where that once upon a time we would have got those supports, we're not getting them. So that's how the care farm started. Already she's formed a partnership with Rural Mental Health Initiative Boots on the Ground, with at-risk and disengaged students from the local schools coming through and spending time on the farm. Based on the results she's seen already, Alicia says it's amazing the difference a few animals can make. This particular boy, he wasn't handling the noise outside, so he actually came inside and he sat down. And I walked over to him and I said, oh, do you want to hold a rat, mate? And he said, no, no, no. I said, well, look, I'll get it out and I'll hold it. And in the end, he held the rat. Mum walked in the door and she burst out crying. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? And she actually hugged me and she said, thank you. She said, That's the first time I've seen him hold an animal or touch an animal and it's the first time I've seen him smile in I don't know how long. To be honest, when the school groups come around, the rats are the most popular, even overtaking the goats. But what has surprised Alicia is just how much of an impact the farm is having with another demographic, men. A lot of people have been reaching out to her husband, confident for the first time to talk about how they've been feeling and getting equipped with the right language. 
my husband works at Greenham's, the local abattoirs, and what we actually found is he's probably had, you know, anywhere from nine to 15 men actually come up to him. And one example was, hey, I was watching TV last night. They were talking about depression and anxiety and it felt like they were telling my life. Where do I go? Where's the help, you know? what can I do? And it's starting that conversation. So, you know, John then was equipped to say, okay, we can't help you, but, you know, you're referral to your doctor, you can go to rural health, you know. They don't necessarily, men don't necessarily follow through with it, but it started that conversation. So then John was then aware that, hey, that person's struggling. So, you know, have that conversation in the lunchroom. Hey, how are you doing today? Where you may not have had that before. In Smithton, mental health is something people are only beginning to get used to talking about. But with the community having been rocked by multiple suicides in the last few years alone, that's changing. Well, the whole um, community services issue is something that, obviously, when I first got on council in 1980, there was only ever roads, roads and rubbish then. And so the community services was something that was never, ever talked about and probably become new to councils probably in the late 1990s and then uh, I think we realised, well, we're good at looking after our community as far as infrastructure and sporting grounds and, you know, rates and our rubbish and all that, but we're probably not as good as looking after our people. That's Circular Head Mayor Daryl Quillam. Circular Head Council in the northwest of Tassie is an hour from Burnie, Smithton is its biggest town. I meet Daryl at the council chambers on Goldie Street. It's pretty quiet in the office, except for the steady sound of trucks driving past as the town goes about its business. My mum had a lot of mental illness and she had to go down to uh, in Norfolk when she got sick and she was away from home off and on a lot. Probably the biggest issue that I had is that the friends that I had really didn't know how to handle mum because of a mental... So I was sort of treated... And I didn't really understand that when I was a kid, but I could, looking back, I was probably treated as a bit of a leper because just people didn't know and understand. Having said all that, is that I think to do the role that I've been able to do as a mayor for as long as I had, because of the experience that I had because of my mother, had actually helped me to be able to deal with a lot of issues that I've had to deal with in the mayor's role, so... Daryl says the stigma of mental health is felt more in small towns. I think the biggest, one of the biggest challenges that I hear and, and I see is the fact that because, again, everybody knows everybody, people don't like to be known that they've got mental illness. And so there is a st- stigma attached to it and, and it probably happens not only in... The, in a small place like Circular Head, but I think that it's known to be a major issue because a lot of families don't even know their child has got mental illness or their young adult. And so nobody likes to be seen as a mental health problem person. Daryl's been mayor for decades now and can see the conversation around mental health shifting. He thinks things are starting to get better and investment is growing. But there's no doubt more needs to be done. I think we need to find out the needs of our people because we're getting far and 
more uh, suicides than we should be getting. Uh, and that's known to be the case. Now, there's various reasons for suicide, and there's, but it's so devastating for not only for their family, but in a place like Circle Head where pretty well everybody knows everybody, which can be a good thing, can be a bad thing too. And so we have to try to understand what goes on. Uh, my name is Laura Johnson and I am a mental health advocate. Born in Smithden, Laura's been working in the advocacy space since she was a teenager, after she was let down by the system when she needed help. I actually got turned away from a service because they said I was faking my symptoms and pretty much like I wasn't a necessity. Uh, so that was really disheartening and I, I went home feeling even worse than what I was. And yeah, so that was probably my probably most brutal experience you could say. Since then, I've put my trust back into the services and yeah, I've now found help, but I, I found that, you know, sometimes that is still happening. At the moment, she's studying a Bachelor of Social Work with Honours, with the goal of opening a mental health clinic of her own in the town of Wynyard, about half an hour from Smithton. She also volunteers with a youth mental health service and spent much of 2020 lobbying for better services across the northwest. She had a big win when a petition she started got picked up by independent politician Ruth Forrest. Laura says every week up to 15 people will contact her about mental health issues. Yeah, there was an instance one time when a young lady called me up saying that she was very suicidal and if she couldn't get any help, then she was going to follow through with that. And immediately I called a contact within a service and I got them on standby and I called up another one and I had multiple phone calls going at the same time. Eventually, like, I got that person to go see somebody and they got sent home uh, and they said, come back if it gets more severe. Two days later, that person attempted their own life and I was yet having to make all those phone calls and it just it came to the point where I was a bit fed up in the regards of it took someone seriously harming themselves for someone to actually provide that help. And I suppose that also does come back to the fact, you know, services are very limited. So I think that is where it comes to light that we do need some sort of bridging service. This is a solution that's been raised before. And down the south of the state, the government has started trialling a new process called PACER. That's Police, Ambulance and Clinician Early Response which is about getting mental health workers to travel with police and ambulance officers to attend mental health-specific call-outs to keep people in the community where possible. It's already seeing strong results, and there's hope it will eventually be extended to the northwest. Laura says there are challenges faced by those on both sides of the coin, the people trying to get help and those trying to provide it. A lot of the time I get people coming to me saying that they just don't know how to access services uh, they don't know what the point of contact is, they can't bring themselves to make the phone call or they are outside of the location area to receive that service. 
And a lot of the time uh, it is around suicide that I do get notified from. A lot of the time people are giving me a call, they're like, oh, can you give me a ride to this place? I really need help. Or can you just come sit with me and talk some stuff through? And so that's a lot of what I get. Laura says getting support can be tough at the best of times and long wait lists don't help. I know in last November, roughly around there, there was a nine month wait list. Uh, I know for a fact that has now decreased a lot. I think we're down to about six weeks waitlist for a lot of services which in comparison is a lot it's nearly chopped in half that waitlist but as somebody going through the system that is still quite a lengthy time to seek out help it's yeah it's like if you was to go to a, a doctor surgery you shouldn't have to wait six weeks for help as much as it'd be great if there was just one factor causing this laura knows it's not that simple being so far away from major cities, Smithton doesn't have the specialised services it really needs. I think it comes down to a couple of factors. Uh, the amount of services there is actually out there um, is quite limiting, especially if somebody is after something that is specialised. Say, for instance, um, like eating disorders, there is not anything that is specialised in Tasmania. So I think the location also plays a big part of it. A lot of people have to travel to services and then that makes that service build up and build up and build up creating those bigger wait lists and I think also another a really big gap is how fast we are educating people to go into the field and it seems to be like all of our specialists tend to head over to the mainland as well so we're not actually keeping any specialized people within the state or very little so that's also plays a big factor in it. Mayor Darrell Quillam says too many have felt firsthand what happens when you don't get help. If we got only had one suicide per year, that is still one too many. So do I think that we can eliminate everything? I said, no, we won't be able to eliminate everything. But we just got to steadily make progress. And I think we, sometimes I think we are, and then when, as soon as you get a suicide, we say, no, we're not. But but obviously we're not doing a good enough job at this point in time and so we have to do everything possible. Daryl says it's not the kind of problem that's ever going to disappear fully, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I don't think there's any one thing that's going to, to put us in position to say, uh, no, we've fixed this completely, but I think we've just got to do as much as we can and, and hopefully um, do the important thing so that we... Um, eliminate as much as possible because we want people to be able to go to work, uh, have a great life. So day to day I'm responsible for overseeing the operations of the organisation. We've now got about probably 16 sites in one form or the other and that includes our um, mental health services obviously and our um, chronic disease management services, um, our youth services, so we run um, youth programs, um, respite care, community houses. That's Robert Waterman. He's the CEO of Rural Health Tasmania. The organisation delivers a huge range of community services in Tassie's regional areas. But increasingly, demand is on their mental health services, making up about 46% of their client encounters. For an organisation that has 30,000-odd presentations a year, that's pretty significant. Robert says the approach to mental health care is improving, 
but that specialist retention is a big issue in regional towns. Um, it's, it's really the biggest challenge at the moment is, as we know, lack of clinical services. Um, we put on another counsellor and, they, and their book becomes full within weeks, basically. As a whole, like the whole of the, the mental health space is only servicing a percentage of the people in the community with mental health issues, so we're still not getting to everybody. Robert says rural health's mental health services are all at capacity. He knows of other services, or private psychologists, whose clients are facing waiting lists of up to five months. We definitely need more mental health clinical services on the ground, more clinicians on the ground, uh, with skills ranging from you know, mental health social worker, mental health counsellor, mental health nurses, um, psychologists. But also, I think the challenge is also recruiting people from that space as well. We're just not getting enough people enrolling in Diploma of Mental Health or uh, Bachelor of Psychology or, you know, they're, they're just not enrolling at the numbers that we need. So we really need to, to act now, I guess, in that recruitment space. We need to make that uh, a bit more attractive. If he had it his way, he'd go on a mental health hiring spree tomorrow. Statewide, he reckons at least 50 new clinicians should be added for real, lasting results. In the northwest, I'd probably put on another between five and ten mental health clinicians. So that would range from mental health counsellors, mental health social workers, mental health nurses and psychologists. We could put two of each of those on and I would say across the state, like in all of our services, we would probably fill those books within two to three weeks. So the only way to deal with that is to put on more mental health services. So, you know, this is something that we can't achieve without help from the government, whether it's the state or the Commonwealth government. And they've got to be clinical services, I've got to make that clear, we don't need more coordination of care. Like good clinicians will coordinate the care for their patient themselves, they'll make those referrals themselves. We need clinicians, we need mental health nurses, we need psychologists, we need mental health social workers and counsellors. However, it's not the only change Robert wants to see. He says the approach to funding also needs an overhaul. You're lucky if you can get a three year contract these days. A lot of contracts are 12 month contracts, two years, Three years, it will be nice to get like six or eight year contracts for programs. Look, mental health is not going to go away. It's been around since I was a child, you know, and I've been around, I've been on the planet a while now, and it's not going anywhere. You know, like, I don't understand what the issue is, why governments won't fund services beyond their term. If you can provide funding for like six to eight years, and look, I don't know any service that wouldn't agree with this, we need longer term contracts. There's no doubt. You know, hospitals, we know we're going to need hospitals forever. You know, you don't fund a hospital for three years. It's just not viable. I'm not walking away ever from the fact that there are gaps because there's increasing in demand and my job is to try and fill those gaps as soon as possible. That's Tasmania's Mental Health Minister and recently appointed Premier, Jeremy Rockliffe. Recruitment and retention, he says, are regularly identified as the major issues. This is reflected across the country. However, Jeremy says the government will ensure regional areas don't get left out. Well, in many respects, we've uh, taken some very positive steps in the right direction here with secure funding, uh, particularly when it comes to community organisations, but also more broadly, when it comes to our child and adolescent mental health services reforms, what will also help with recruitment, and this has been fed back to me, is that 
when it comes to mental health services in Tasmania, there's a real reformist zeal. I'm very committed to reform. I'm very committed to innovation and backing that up with investment. In the most recent state budget, $8.5 million went to a Northwest mental health hospital in the home pilot. And in Smithton, a new youth mental health service was launched last year with a preventative focus. People can see that we're really wanting to reform our system here in Tasmania. And the feedback to me is, is that does help with, with recruitment. In the northwest, there's also set to be a major redevelopment of the Northwest Regional Hospital, including the construction of a purpose-built mental health facility to replace the current Spencer Clinic. Importantly, it'll be designed to provide care for all ages, with the current space not suitable for young people. Many are optimistic that change is happening. Jeremy says the government is also working to assist multiple professionals from the UK to come and join the workforce, with eight applicants having arrived already and local recruitment ongoing. He says there's a long way to go, but that it's not an issue that's being swept under the rug. We've got enormous investment that's coming online in terms of our child and adolescent mental health services and also very important, relevant to the northwest coast as well, particularly in that preventative space, uh, community-based care options, and that $8.5 million over two years for that mental health hospital and the home pilot in the northwest, which that's going to have a particular youth focus to identify uh, those gaps. I want to be ensure that Tasmania is the most recognised state or territory when it comes to uh, mental health and wellbeing, and I believe we're may- making inroads. Mental health advocate Laura Johnson says consultation with communities is vital for working out the best use of funding. A lot of resources are getting dedicated to bigger cities like Hobart and Launceston, whereas more of the rural towns are seeing less and less of it. There is little pockets of funding that do slip through into those towns, but it's not really enough to establish anything. Uh, For instance, Smithton got a psychologist just one though so (laughs) for a whole town to have the one psychologist comes in it just it doesn't really balance up that very well and then that puts a lot of pressure on that poor psychologist so yeah it's I think it's about getting that balance and yeah really whoever's doing the funding probably actually needs to go to the towns and spend a bit of time there and actually kind of get to the roots and the basis of how things are done and designed within the town. That way, the adequate funding can be separated. Laura believes education is also an important part of mental health care. She says teaching students in the wider community about mental health science would reduce stigma and also improve response time. Especially within schools. It's not so much taught, and I feel like it should be a block, a lesson, a couple of lessons taken out of uh you know, the school year just to focus on what mental health is, where to get some resources and to notice the signs straight away. Even get a mental health plan in action for those who do actually need it because not all but a lot of mental health problems do stem from childhood and by helping the younger generation get a hold of that before it can escalate into bigger things, I think that's probably where to target the most. Proud crazy goat lady, Alicia, agrees that improving the community's overall understanding of mental health is vital. Instead of throwing all these services in offices, let's get people on the ground trained. So when we were on the dairy farm 
and we were really struggling. It was low milk price, just terrible for dairy farmers. My husband actually had to step away from the farm. He's mentally, he was done. He was exhausted. Financially, we couldn't give up. So I then stepped on and ran the farm. Well, the Roberts truck, who are now nutrient, truck driver that used to come out every Friday, I don't know how many times I broke down crying to him or the chemicals man that would come out and talk to you about your wash system and how everything was going and that sort of thing. And you'd end up talking about the farm and life. And and I feel like we need to be engaging some of our major employers in the community and getting your everyday Joe Blows, your accidental counsellor-type um, programs, suicide prevention. They say there, there were no signs. There were no signs. I've done the cause program now and there were signs. I just didn't know how to pick up on them. And it's like you go to the hairdresser and what do you do? You sit there and have a yak. And, you know, if your hairdresser can pick up that, oh, hey, she's really struggling how can I help? So is that that I give her a phone number or a card or is it that I get somebody to check in on her or, you know, yeah, I just feel that the model of care, we're not being strong enough with our preventative. There's no doubt whatsoever that if we do a really great job with our kids, we don't have to see people as adults for mental health. Rural Health's Robert Waterman says Tassie and regional Australia more broadly has a long road ahead of it when it comes to looking after the mental health of its communities. However, it can be done. It's the number one factor is we just need to pour more money into mental health. Governments may say that, you know, we can't just keep pouring more and more money into mental health, but it's, you know, I'm pretty confident that some municipalities would forego some of the work on their roads or something like that that don't that could last, a, you know, another year or two if they knew that their kids were being looked after a bit better in school with their mental health and things like that. Well, I think setting our priorities a little bit better uh, and mental health in Tasmania and nationally needs to be, you know, it needs to be right up there as a priority. Despite the challenges, Laura will continue to help people in her community. I would be lying if I would say that it's all sunshine and rainbows. Some of the days it's just so overwhelming that I, I can't even cope myself. I would just stay in bed and just try and process and but at the end of the day the simple fact is I I have the power to help change one person's life and that is the best and the most rewarding thing ever and just sharing my wisdom what I've learned so far with that person I think that's how you can make a change. Until change starts filtering through from the top it's community focused solutions like Alicia's that will keep trying to plug those gaps. Fortunately, she's got no shortage of plans for the venture. It won't suit everyone. Not one shoe fits everyone, but we will slide into the community and have a positive effect on at least someone. And if we can save just someone's one life, then it's worth it. You know, goats are pretty cool. You came down for goat yoga and the laughter, the atmosphere, the that well-being, that Animal therapy is now being recognised strongly within the medical profession. Um, You're seeing more therapy dogs going into hospitals and places of work and and that sort of thing. But there is a huge potential for animal therapy, equine therapy, and, and we hope to grow.
It's going to take a lot of big things from big groups to fix Smithton's mental health challenges. But in the meantime, there are worse ways to spend a Sunday than in the downward goat position. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Follow us on Instagram at Voice of Real Australia to see photos from our stories. Voice of Real Australia comes to you from Burnie this week on Pulawa Land. This podcast was produced by me, Lara Corrigan, and Tom Melville, reporting by Meg Whitfield of The Advocate. Special thanks this week go to Anthony Hanavia, Rodney Braithwaite, and Jerry Moore. Our editor is Emily Sweet. This is an ACM podcast. Mm-hmm.